Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning on this 30th day of September. This is your. This might be your wake-up call this morning. Uh, Paul Perot already knows this, but I opened the front door of my house. I have my computer in my left hand. I have my coffee in my right hand, and I walked right into a spider web. The spider was right in the middle of the web. I mean, <laughs> okay, there you go. I Wake am up. awake. She's awake, Ooh. folks. <laughs> yes, and so then I had to, of course, set everything down and... <clears throat> get a broom and anyway okay so let's see where should we start this morning i'm going to start with senator joe manchin from west virginia this is one quick headline out of washington dc this morning you recognize his name he is a democrat he's also pro-life and here's what he had to say about negotiations related to the current spending bill Uh, It's a process called reconciliation, which I want to return to in just a moment. Where does your mind go as a Christian when you hear the word reconciliation? Um, Joe Manchin said reconciliation must include the Hyde Amendment. Now, the Hyde Amendment is that piece of uh, legislation that has been attached for many, many years to every spending item out of Congress that prohibits the use of any American taxpayer dollars uh, to be used for abortions. And you will recall that uh, the current Democratic-dominated Congress stripped the Hyde Amendment from everything. And so Manchin says, in a turn of phrase, if it doesn't include the Hyde Amendment, it's dead on arrival. Uh, For the additional $3.5 trillion in spending, Joe Manchin had this to say, quote, What I have made clear to the president and Democratic leaders is that spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs when we can't even pay for the essential programs like Social Security and Medicare is the definition of fiscal insanity. Suggesting that spending trillions more will have an impact on inflation ignores the everyday reality that American families continue to pay um, an unavoidable inflation tax. So bless him. Uh, That's what's going on today in Washington They will have to find a resolution before midnight tonight in relationship to the debt ceiling or America will default on what she owes. So that's what's happening uh, today in Washington. Now, when we hear the word reconciliation, every time I hear that Congress is engaged in a process called reconciliation, my mind, you know, I can't help myself, my mind immediately leaps to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So where does your mind go when you hear the word reconciliation? Here's where my mind goes. For the love of Christ controls us. I mean, we have concluded that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who uh, live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ in this way, we regard him in this way no longer. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you hear the word reconciliation, where does your mind go? Does it go to the message of reconciliation entrusted to us by God? Does it go to the ministry of reconciliation given to us by God? If people aren't reconciled to God, there's not going to be any reconciliation one with another. So there you go. Where does your mind go when you hear that in D.C. there is a process of reconciliation underway? Yes, I know. For them, it's about math. For me, it's about much more. All right. And if you needed any more evidence that inflation has officially arrived, here's a headline for you. Dollar Tree. Um, yeah, the the stores that say everything's a dollar. Dollar Tree uh, is officially raising prices above a dollar. Mm, there you go. All right. Uh, we got Ben Johnson on the line with at least one disturbing headline out of California where the governor has signed into law bills allowing kids to hide sex operations and abortions from their parents. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Joining me now, Ben Johnson. He writes at dailywire.com. He also tweets at the rights writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Okay, so uh, what's going on? I mean, you know, this is a sentence that could be ended so many ways or answered in so many ways. But what's going on in California that you and I are paying attention to this morning? (laughs) Well, like you say, so many things uh, going on in California. But the one in particular to focus on is uh, a new bill that uh, Gavin, Gavin Newsom, the uh, not recalled governor of California, has just signed, uh, 1184, Assembly Bill 1184, which uh, says that anyone who has had a medical procedure can, can uh, cover up that medical procedure from anyone else, uh, unless that person is the, the primary um, policy holder of the insurance. So, so in other words, it will not be disclosed to anyone other than the person involved, and this specifically includes abortion and gender transition surgeries and gender transition treatments. So what we're talking about here is that a minor can have an abortion, a minor can have uh, a, uh, a gender transition uh, surgery of some kind, uh, you know, all the way down to the age of 12 years old, and, uh, and the, the parent would not be notified. Uh, you know, this is this is someone uh, again, someone 12 years old or 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 up, 
but uh, you know, all the way down to, uh, we're talking at that point, fifth, sixth grade, essentially, could have one of these procedures, and the parents would not be notified. They would not even be able to know about it. So uh, needless to say, uh, it, it did pass. Uh, it was signed into law by the governor. Um, however, there, there was a letter written by the nine members of the uh, Senate who were Republican they said we should be encouraging parents and family to be involved in their children's lives, not removing them further from it. So uh, this is this is very much a case where the state. Uh, the only reason that uh, you could you could think of for this, uh, you know, if we think very carefully about the categories that are involved here, often we say that a minor is not uh, intellectually or mature, uh, intellectually mature enough or emotionally mature enough to engage in certain kinds of behavior unless a parent is involved. And what we're saying here is apparently that uh, it's the belief of the California Assembly and Governor Gavin Newsom that an abortion and permanently changing one's, uh, one's own uh, sexua sexuality, or at least the, the physiognomy related to sex, has no negative implications and that uh, therefore someone who is as, as young as 12 years old could begin that process and would not have any negative lifelong, uh, lifelong complications, uh, so that uh, there, there would be no reason for a parent to be involved. So I'm sure there are people thinking right now, well, the parents are going to know because the parents are the, um, are the primary policyholder for the health insurance that is paying for these, uh, these surgeries and or uh, these abortions, but not in California. In California, um, abortions are paid for by taxpayers, um, and uh, gender reassignment surgeries are often paid for not by primary insurance, but by some other organization um, and or uh, Medicaid. So I just think that it's, it, right, these are the issues in this particular uh, state um, include the ways in which abortion and gender reassignment surgery are funded in the first place. Absolutely. I, you know, the, the idea that taxpayers should be involved in funding something like this, uh, whether it's, uh, again, whether it's gender reassignment, whether it's an abortion, uh, obviously these have moral components to them that uh, many, many people uh, of many faiths, uh, Christians obviously, but people who are not Christians as well, and people uh, who are not necessarily of a faith, but who have a grasp of the underlying science of embryology, oppose abortion, and they oppose being forced to fund abortion. So uh, the idea that they should be compelled to do so against their will, uh, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, would be the very definition of tyranny, for someone to be compelled to uh, furnish funds for something that he believes to be uh, to be wrong and knows to be immoral is uh, sinful and tyrannical. So that's that's the definition of what's what we're fighting over here. And uh, you know, uh, you and I believe that uh, life begins at conception. We believe that not merely based on the testimony of science, but also also on scripture. Uh, the two are mutually reinforcing. The two will not contradict one another, and they don't. And in this case, since life begins at conception, uh, it is morally wrong, uh, it is ethically wrong to take the life of an innocent person without due process of the law. Just societies don't allow that, much less do they fund it, uh, and much less even than that do they fund it and allow someone to hide the lifelong emotional complications that will follow from that uh, in, in from the parents who, uh, who are, are involved in this. It's essentially the state substituting itself and its idea 
its parental guidance for the parental guidance of the two people who care the most about the child, which is the mother and the father. Yeah, which would take us to uh, another headline out of Virginia where Governor Terry uh, McAuliffe is is um, uh, seeking reelection and said in a debate that he doesn't think parents um, should uh, should be subject to what parents think should be taught in schools, that parents should not be telling schools what they should teach. So just just a lot of this going on across the country in terms of uh, a misunderstanding of whose children these are and who's responsible to raise them. Well, I, I think the classic uh, formulation of it was Melissa Harris-Perry of MSNBC a few years ago. This has may, been maybe almost 10 years ago at this point. But uh, in one of the promos for MSNBC, she said, you know, we need to stop thinking about these as uh, as individual children. We need to think about them as our children. And that tells you where society has been heading. Uh, there's half of society believes that believes in the traditional view that mothers and fathers should raise children. And another half that believes that uh, their political ideology is so important that society should be the primary caregiver and should be the primary parent. And uh, anyone who has seen, for example, the uh, the terrible effects that have had that have occurred to, uh, say, the autistic children who were raised in uh, in Romania, uh, where they were simply abandoned in facilities, not talked to, completely ignored. Uh, it induced a kind of of um, permanent uh, condition, uh, a backwardsness uh, that uh, was very difficult to stamp out and cut short their potential. That's what happens when society is in charge of people. It's the tragedy of the commons, but on a human scale, and it has global, it has spiritual implications. All right, we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back more with our friend Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. All right, continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. He also tweets at The Rights Writer. Uh, share with us, Ben, about this decision in the Tenth Circuit, which ultimately says that government can compel and silence speech. Yeah, this is uh, this is on a collision course with the U.S. Constitution. It is definitely going to have to go higher, higher uh, in the court system. And uh, it involves a, a web designer by the name of Lori Smith, who runs a, a group called 303 Creative. She's a, she's a web designer. She makes websites specifically for weddings. And um, so you can, all, you can almost see where we're going immediately. She's in the state of Colorado, just like Jack Phillips and, uh, and the Masterpiece Cake Shop. So uh, when, when the attorneys came calling, uh, what they were, the, the issue is she, doesn't, uh, she, she is a, a faithful person, and she doesn't believe that uh, a marriage uh, consists of anything other than one man and one woman for life. That's her faith. That's what motivates her. And so she was sued uh, by by the state for violating the uh, the non-discrimination act uh, based on uh, sexual preference. It went to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and it was just a three judge panel, but it was a two to one decision against her in favor of the state of Colorado. Now, that's highly unusual. I, it, it boggled my mind when I heard about this decision. Uh, I mean, by the way, she's represented by the good folks at uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom which do such good work in these cases. But uh, essentially what that is saying is that, and, and it, it's important for us to assert this uh, legal understanding, under the Constitution and the First Amendment, you have the right to freedom of speech, which means you can say anything you want to say, uh, but at the same time, 
you also have the right to remain silent. We, we understand that, which means you can't be forced or compelled to say anything that you don't want to say. And what this decision is saying essentially is, yes, you can. If someone comes to you and wants you to use your, your abilities to convey a message that you don't believe in, that you find sinful and abhorrent, uh, as we were saying in the, last, uh, in the last segment, Thomas Jefferson said to be compelled to pay for that is sinful and tyrannical, but to be compelled to, to participate in it is something uh, yet more. And that's what's uh, being asked here, is that uh, Lori Smith and, uh, and uh, 303 end up using their, their talents in order to convey a message that she believes is sinful, uh, and that she will have to answer for before God when she stands before the throne of heaven. So it's it's unheard of. Uh, it's it's unconscionable that someone would be forced to uh, to violate their conscience in the first place. It's something else yet again to say that this person would be forced and compelled to um, uh, to speak in a way that is unconstitutional. So uh, there's there's no question in my mind this is going uh, back in front of the full court, and then it it may very well end up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, if if we don't um, have have some kind of a change, a massive change in the Colorado government, uh, of course they've been playing games with uh, Phillips and with Master uh, with uh, with his cake uh, business for many many years. They simply bring him up on one charge after another after another, and something has to be done with uh, the underlying reality. The Supreme Court has said that uh, this this kind of statute and this kind of persecution should not take place. Someone cannot be compelled to say something that you believe is false. That is one of the very foundational understandings of this Constitution, one of the foundational freedoms that the Founding Fathers wrote into the First Amendment. And the ability to live your faith uh, is a, com a vital component of your faith, not simply to pray on Sunday, but to take it into the workplace Monday through Friday. We believe that you can't set up a false dichotomy. You have to live out your faith day in and day out. You should have the freedom to do so. All right. Um, finally, let's talk about what's in the uh, what's in the three point five billion dollar spending package. I mean, there's a lot in there. This definitely falls into the category of you're going to have to read it to find out what's in there. Well, somebody did read at least one portion of it. And apparently there's a weird thing related to the media in there. What's going on there in terms of freedom of the press or a free press? Yeah, well, the the big thing that's in the three point five trillion plan is uh, your children's future is what's what's <laughs> in there. But uh, no, the three point five trillion dollar bill, as it's set up right now, now we we should understand that the Democrats are debating this right now. It could be stripped out, but there's a provision as of right now that would have the federal government uh, essentially pay journalists up to half their salary, twenty five thousand dollars a year. Uh, if you work at a newspaper of about 700 employees or less. Now, 700 employees is an enormous newspaper. That's not your mom-and-pop newspaper. A friend of mine is the editor of the local newspaper. I think they have maybe uh, 7 to 10 people, uh, unless you get into the—even when you get into the uh, the publishing aspect of, of printing. So this is enormous. Now, the reason that this is an issue, first of all, uh, you have the government picking winners and losers that people did not want to buy newspapers, and yet the government's saying we're going to keep them in business anyway. But more more importantly, can you honestly operate as a journalist and work freely, openly, and honestly and criticize the government when it's paying half your salary? Do, don't you think that that's going to skew the way that you cover things? 
So now that the government, first of all, there's, of course, there's no constitutional authorization for this, but the chilling effect is uh, very real that uh, if you're receiving your, gov- your, your paycheck from the government, you're going to be very reticent to criticize the government. And that is one of the most important functions of a free press, to hold the uh, powerful to account. That's why someone like Carmen LaBerge is doing this program and also to enlighten people with the truth of the gospel and to help them bring that truth into the, into the uh, public space. So, uh, so you know, certain, certain people cannot be bought, but uh, others might be willing to question their integrity if, if money is on the line. Well, and their employers um, would have a vested interest in being sure that the government providing 50 percent of the salary of journalists, you know, their employer would have an incentive as well. So even if an individual journalist was not personally, uh, you know, was not personally affected in terms of their coverage of things, their employer um, who's getting the money from the government and then using it to pay the salaries, they are certainly going to be affected. And so um, <clears throat> this, is a, this is a big issue. I mean, I think this is a big this is a big concern. And if you weren't already raising concern with members of Congress about what's in the three point five billion dollar spending uh, package, here would be something you could certainly raise concern uh, about. So there you go. Um, ben, you know, as always, such a delight to talk with you. There's just so many other things that you and I could talk about, but we'll have to leave it there today. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. Likewise, you guys can find a Ben. Uh, at dailywire.com. You can also find him at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. All righty. So we talk about Gen Z uh, from time to time, the youth of today. And uh, we are a little intimidated by them. We acknowledge that. We don't fully understand the world that they, in, the digital world they inhabit. We don't necessarily understand the things that interest them. But we are interested in reaching them, and we're certainly interested in their expectations and uh, perceptions related to the gospel. So Barna Research, in collaboration with Alpha USA, has done a study of Gen Z and their expectations and their desires when it comes to Christians sharing the faith with them. And as Christians, they're sharing the faith with others. So we're going to talk with the National Youth Director for Alpha USA up next about all that. We'll be right back. You can be certain that one day your kids will realize the uncertainty of life. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When I think about what kids view and hear today, it's no surprise that many kids entering adolescence are filled with questions. They're undecided about which path to take. They don't feel ready to face the world. And they're on the fence whether or not they buy into the stuff their parents taught them. The uncertainty can be overwhelming. Moms and dads need to be aware of this anxiety simmering beneath the surface. You have an opportunity right now to step in and calm a few fears. You can be one of the certain, predictable, and constant forces in your teen's life. When all else fails, moms and dads turn to Mark Gregston for help. Equip yourself with the wisdom you need to succeed at parentingtodaysteens.org. Jordan Bier 
Sawyer joins us now. He was a local youth pastor for 10 years before joining Alpha USA in 2019 as their national youth director. And he's here today to talk with us about a collaborative study that Alpha has done with our friends over at Barna Research on Gen Z's attitudes toward Christianity and evangelism. Jordan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thanks for having me. So good to be here. It's great to have you. All right. So um, for folks who, you know, might have been thinking about other things before listening to this, remind us who <laughs> yeah. we're talking about when we use the term Gen Z. Yeah. So so Gen Z is somewhere we're going to say as old as like 11 or as old as sorry, 22 and as young as probably 11 or so. Um, and then the study that we're actually talking about specifically targets ages 13 to 18. So right in the heart of the Gen Z. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna confine our conversation here to um, to students, you know, the the ones that we think of in student ministry. So ages like thirteen to eighteen. Maybe if you're thinking about your local church, that might be middle and high school student ministries. Um, Jordan, when you when you did this study with Barna, what did you mm-hmm. learn about the way members of Gen Z define evangelism? Yeah, so as they kind of leaned into this term evangelism, um, we have found that what they long for is this relational component, like life on life. They'd rather enter into evangelism with one another. Now, there is like this, they do have this, you know, idea of evangelism as it was in the past, but they've it, in part kind of rejected that, like, bring them to church, I'm going to tell them the gospel, and they're going to be saved, you know? Um what they want to do is they want to enter into life on life with each other, they want to enter into the journey. And in fact, what we've found is that, um, this is interesting, most Gen Z are actually talking about their faith. And that was one thing that's actually surprising for me. Most Gen Z are actually talking about their faith with one another. It's just they're doing it in ways that are natural for them, very calm, very peaceful um, in schools and everywhere. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think that um, when... When many adults hear that, first of all, they're uh, they're thrilled, like, right, I'm thrilled that students are talking with one another about their faith. I also recognize that um, they are doing so in ways that are maybe less combative, I'm going to use that term, than, yeah. um, than we might have seen um, in earlier generations or in, in different iterations of evangelism or evangelization. So what we're talking about and what your uh, study with Barna has discovered is that these students, they're, they are talking with one another about mm-hmm. faith, but those they're listening to one another as well. So they are as likely to spend time listening non-judgmentally to another student who talks about their faith, and that faith might be um, Islam, it might be uh, Wicca, it might be um, science, right? Like wherever it is that that other student is putting their faith, our Christian Gen Zer in this case is listening non-judgmentally to that, and also recognizing that they're going to have the opportunity to to talk about their own faith. But it's not like it's a my faith in opposition to your faith, and here's, we're going to have this debate about it. They're just genuinely sharing with one another what they believe. Yeah, exactly. Gen Z has done so well at being interested in one another, 
And and something actually for the church, for us, even like church leaders trying to take cues from Gen Z, they're so good at being interested in one another that they've kind of lost this this like desire to be interesting. And so we also take cues from Gen Z as their peer-to-peer evangelism right now is probably one of the best things that's happening. They are so good at being interested over being interesting that they're having all of these conversations already. And so they are entering into these conversations with a desire for mutual understanding, judgment-free listening, and also this um, desire to to really get to the heart of why do you believe what you believe? We'd love to have an honest conversation because they want something real. And, and for us, like we know that those who seek after the Lord will find him. You know, th- those who are going to go after him, who are going to discover Jesus will make himself real to his young people. And we're seeing that everywhere across the country. And when they enter into this journey, Jesus will absolutely be real. And that, and there's just Gen Z is doing an incredible job at leaning into having heart to heart conversations and getting down to the root. Is this real or not? <laughs> and I love it. And I think Jesus does too. That's what we're seeing across the country. I found myself wondering, Jordan, as I was um, as I was considering the findings in this Barna research uh, done collaborative, collaboratively with Alpha, um, I found myself wondering how often we just ask students in this age group, you know, 13 to 18 year olds, I mean, how often we just ask them, what do you believe and, and why do you believe what you believe? Like, how often have we as adults just paused, hit the pause button in whatever, you know, critical concern we have for them in the world that they inhabit and just ask them, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Um, I remember a conversation with Kara Powell um, along these lines where she just has these really good questions, I think, that she asked her own kids. Um, And, you know, it kind of starts with what's one thing that, you know, I believe that you don't believe anymore. Um, or what's one thing that you believe that you think I don't believe? Mm-hmm. You know, just as conversation starters with the kids in our own homes um, or our yeah. grandkids or the kids, you know, the kids who we know best. And let's talk. Um, let's talk about that. These are conversations had in the context of real relationship. So let's talk about the value that Gen Zers place on trusted individuals. Like, what does it look like to become a safe person for a kid in this generation? Yeah, and that's so good, Carmen. I'm I'm glad you're leaning into this because this is probably one of the main things for anyone listening. If you want to have a ministry with Gen Z, we have to learn how to listen really well. Um, and when I say listen really well, a lot of times, especially youth pastors, you know, like me, we think that listening is the absence of talking, <laughs> but it's just not the case. Listening, we have to listen in such a way that young people feel heard. And when we can do that, we will. They will open up about all these doubts that they have, all these questions they have. And I and I mentioned, love that you mentioned Kara. Kara also says, um, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith; it's actually silence. And so we need to eradicate the silence around all these different questions that they have, because these questions are not. They're not going to <clears throat> destroy their faith. They actually could be catalysts to a more robust and deeper faith. And so for us, we have to create the space for listening. And, and here's, here's the challenge for that. Here's what I found. The challenge for that is that listening requires time, but take, requires repeated time over a long period of time. And so we just, what Gen Z is asking for 
It's actually a ministry of presence. And for us as older generations, I'm, I'm millennial, you know, even Gen X boomers, like, are we willing to create the time necessary to disciple a generation? Because what they're asking for is they're asking, are you with me? Do, do you want to understand me? Are you interested in me? And if we give them a yes, uh, we will see, a gen- and this has been my experience in youth ministry, we, we have seen just saying a simple yes to young people, they'll come thousands of miles towards you. you, you all you have to do is take a couple of steps in. And it's beautiful. So if we're going to have this ministry, Gen Z, and lean in parents or grandparents or anyone, create the space where the young person feels comfortable and safe to ask any question and to wrestle with the doubt. And don't be quick to give answers, but almost help them as they discover this for themselves by asking great questions and listening with the intent for them to be heard and not just for you to recite answers. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation with Jordan Bior in just a moment. Uh, He is the National Youth Director for Alpha USA. We are talking about the collaborative report between Alpha and Barna Research, reviving evangelism in the next generation. We'll be right back. You're my defender. Jordan Bier is with us today. He's the National Youth Director for Alpha USA. You can find Alpha at alphausa.org. You might want to check out the Alpha Youth Series there at alphausa.org. We're talking with him about the reviving of evangelism in the next generation study that uh, Alpha has done collaboratively with our friends over at Barna Research. Jordan, um, we have uh, a listener who has texted in a question um, he says, first of oh, all, I, I, I actually bought the report. I just haven't read it yet. Um, so there you go. All right. So here we go. Free, free, free looksy in here. Um, he's asking about the question or, or the definition of the term real. Um, do these Gen Zers believe that some things are true and some things are not? Is there a true and false conversation happening here when we talk about what is real? Yeah, that's a great question. Um from what we're finding, I don't think that, I think for them, a discovery of something that is real is something that they're going to look at objective truth a little bit differently. Um, I think for them, an experience is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that they feel is going to be very real. Um, and then, but like an objective truth, I think I think that's what kind of alluding to is this objective truth kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know right now if we would say, yeah, Gen Z's running hard after this objective truth, but they are running after hard after what is truth. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember, um, you know, this is a hundred years ago when I was in youth ministry, but I, you know, I remember, you know, like the the very open conversations about. Students desiring, um, you know, a, a transforming, authentic experience, like right uh, with Jesus, like right. That's that's mm-hmm. what's transformative. That's what's transformative for all of us, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. I would testify to the reality of a transformed life um, mm-hmm. because I had this encounter with the living Christ. I mean, it's not it's not as dramatic as the one that Paul had on the road to Damascus. But for me, it was the scales falling off my eyes, right? I mean, for me, it was seeing the one who uh, who really is 
uh, my savior and that I was really in need of being saved. So, you know, I think that when we talk about um, feelings or we talk about experiences, I think there's this temptation to reduce that as, well, that doesn't mean as much as objective truth. Well, um, yeah, if you had a transforming encounter with the living Christ, let me tell you, that's your testimony. It's not that all the, you know, that that you can now intellectually line up all the parts and pieces perfectly so that they fit together in the puzzle. No, no. I mean, originally, like, right, we were really good to find a corner piece. Like, I, I'm I'm really happy that I discovered the corner piece. I've that I've found the cornerstone. From there, yeah, have I constructed and built a really well integrated, you know, system of faith? And can I express that differently now than I than I could have then? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not where you start, or it's not where I started. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And the looking for an encounter. I think what's if this is real, then then Jesus should show up. If he is yeah. good and he's loving, he should show up. And that's what they're going after. Um, there's actually, I live in Holland, Michigan, and there's this thing that's bubbling up here where um, there's actually two, three, four hundred students that will actually go, Gen Zers, that will go and they're choosing to go worship in the woods. And this is when COVID erupted, you know, they couldn't go to church. So they actually will go and worship in the woods and they're inviting all their friends to come worship in the woods with each other. And what we're finding is that even some young people there are encountering Jesus, choosing to follow him. And of course they're Instagram living it, right? So uh, they're actually going Instagram live. And I saw one time that there were students being baptized by their friends because they encountered Jesus in the woods with their friends. and it's just beautiful. Like, so, so yeah, they are pressing in to find what is true, but I think that's come through the vehicle of encounters. And for us, how are we creating spaces for them to encounter Jesus? That's a good question for us to wrestle with as youth ministers everywhere. All right. And you just totally freaked some people out, right? That, um, oh, yeah, they're baptizing, they're, you know, right. They're baptizing their friends in the woods and they're doing this on Instagram live. And, you know, who's the authority under what denominational authority? Who's writing down those bapt? I mean, who's making certificates of baptism? Where are those being kept and whose records? Like I, there's a part of this that, um, if it's going to be real, it's going to be, you know, first generation Jesus version of it. And that makes, mm-hmm. You know that makes the uh, the generation that's currently in charge of uh, of the ordination uh, <clears throat> standards or hats or whatever that makes that crowd really uncomfortable. And I just think we have to be honest about that. It just, but I would much rather them be worshiping in the woods and authentically expressing their Christian faith and leading one another to Christ than um, you know than going to Burning Man. Like right, they're going to go somewhere. They're going to find meaning. They're going to find identity. They're going to find a group. I would much rather. We, um, we frankly help um, equip young people who are in a much better position to reach one another with the gospel than any of us who are not, um, well, frankly, on Instagram live, because we don't even know how to do that. (laughs) And even if we did, we wouldn't, we wouldn't become famous because of Jesus. Yeah. And and Carmen, I think you're right. I think we need to look at Gen Z and and Gen Z needs us as, as, older generations to come alongside and coach, of course, um, and come alongside and develop, of course. Do they have all the theology right? Of course not. Like, did we when we were teenagers? No, of course not. Like, I loved your image of a corner piece. You get the corner piece, you kind of build it out from there. And we need to help put those pieces. But at the same time, Gen Z has unique sparks that are unique to them, that if we allow it, 
that will help reignite flames that we once carried as well. There's a generation missing in the church for us. And if we would let them own pieces and champion them in that way, we could have we could see a holistic, reignited, revitalized kind of uh, gathering. Um, I really do believe that Gen Z, they're not just a lost voice. I mean, they are lost, but in some ways they have this like undertone of a prophetic voice that's speaking what once was and what the church should lean into now. We just have to give the time to listen and, and lean into them. Oh, so helpful. Jordan, thank you so much. Um, you guys can find uh, Jordan at alphausa.org. You're looking there for the Alpha Youth information. Uh, the The particular study that we're talking about today, which Alpha did in collaboration with Barna, is called Reviving Evangelism in the Next Generation. It's available in both U.S. and Canadian versions at barna.com. Um, Jordan, thank you so much. What a blessing. What a, what a joy to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you guys. Blessings. Likewise. All right, friends, we'll be right back. All right, among other things, today is apparently National Love People Day. Okay, so here are my thoughts on this. I mean, yes, I'm so glad it's National Love People Day, and I want everybody to love each other today. Absolutely. But here are my questions. Just a day? Like, what? we're only going to have one day that we're going to love people, and we're only going to love the people in our nation? It's just going to be National Love People Day, and it's only going to be one day, and we have to have a day? Like, what? We had to have a, We have to have an official day to, to love people? Okay, so... <clears throat> Why not love all people everywhere, every day? I mean, why not let our love be genuine? Why not be the people who, whose witness and testimony and conversations and presence is marked by love? And what does love look like? If you want to know what love look like, looks like, look at Jesus. All right? He is exegeting the Father. And God is love. So, yes, on National Love People Day, let's love people. But... Let's not do it for just a day. And let's not just love people in our nation. Let's love people because God loves people and God is love. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.